Welcome to a dog day edition of the tennis season here on Advantage Connors. Coming to you as always, your co-host Brett and Jimmy Connors. What's going on today, Pops? What a day. I've uh, been up and going, busy all day. You've got Isabella next to you, and I've got uh, Stevie, our wild little kitty who found us about 11 years ago. He's just kind of chilling on my lap right now, and I'm sitting in my den. I've had a good day, but a busy day, so it's all good. Yep, I got the Isabella, the mascot, the golden doodles underneath the desk as we're recording right now, taking care of me, keeping an eye on us while we do this. But yeah, I just wanted to talk to you about a couple stories in the tennis world. Before we get underway, I, I put out, out there for our listeners, give us some topics and, and articles and stories and stuff for the week, but we'll get into that. But I wanted to get your take on a tennis story from somebody that you used to play against who has uh, thrown his hat back in the tennis ring and seemed to have had some early success. They played one match together, Mr. Boris Becker, six-time Grand Slam nice. champion, boom, boom, back in the game coaching Holger Runa, who I think is like seven or eighth in the, in the live rankings right now, top 10 player who you know, burst on the scene at the end of last year, winning Paris and, and some other titles, kind of had a little bit of a dip, stopped working with Patrick Martagalou earlier this summer and has uh, joined forces with Boris and just wanted to get your take on that. Yeah, you know, I, I saw that and I kind of like the matchup. And here's the reason. First of all, it's good to see Boris, you know, back in the game and, you know, happy that he's, uh, he's gone through some struggles and happy to see him back. And being where he likes to be, which is, you know, around the tennis and, you know, the in, in the tennis world. But I think that's great. And here's why. When Boris first burst on the team, on the scene at 17 years old and won Wimbledon, you know, his game, his approach to his game and the way he played was pretty exciting. Yeah, you know, he'd he had ground strokes. He had a huge serve. He wasn't afraid to leave his feet and go, you know, spread all out going after a, a volley or, or whatever. And I think what he can bring, you know, to his relationship is that, well, you know, what it takes to just be that little extra and to to push yourself just a little bit more. Not that he's uh, Runa's not, but to have somebody that's been there and done that. And knows what it takes to win Wimbledon and to win U.S. Opens and to win, you know, major titles around the world week after week after week. And to put your reputation and your game on the line like that, that's an important part of it. I think that gets left out a lot. And I think that's why at one time, a lot of the players a number of years ago went for some of the older guys that could bring that experience and what they you know, had to fight through and what they accomplished and, you know, and try to subtly, you know, transform that over to them. Because, you know, let, let's face it, Runa's had success already. He's just not won a Grand Slam yet. Right. And so to be able to do that, you know, that little bit, you know, it's a tweak. You're not changing a guy's whole game. You're not breaking him down and starting, you know, starting over. It's a tweak. It's a little this. It's a very little that. You know, what that is, you know, I, I don't know. But Boris being around him, you know, and having done it himself and knows what to look for, will search that out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, Boris has been my friend for years. And, you know, since he came up when he was, you know, he, he's just a youngster in my books. But we've been friends for years. And and he knows I did TV with him at the BBC and did matches with him and and listened to you know, what he talked about and how he broke down a match and what was necessary and how it needed to be done. And I think he can transform that over to Runa mm -hmm. and that's going to take him to another level. 
What yeah. are your thoughts? What do you think of that? Yeah, I agree. I think uh, I've talked to some people who who were kind of questioning the stylistic differences between them because, you know, Rune is more of a baseliner and and Boris, you know, serve and volley or come to net and, you know, put the pressure yeah, on but, his but, opponent. But, but Brett or Becker had, had ground strokes too. I played him a number of times. For he sure. He had heavy ground strokes. Yeah. You know, and, and that just made his serve and volley game and his net game even better. Yeah, you had that big serve plus one where you'd have the big serve, get a weak reply, and just smash away. Right. I think it's a good thing, though. You know, like I think the stylistic difference is good because Boris knows some of the things that Runa needs to work on. You know, I think he can work on his serve. I think he can work on, you know, coming to net, you know, getting in. He definitely can get better at net, like his volley and mm -hmm. his stuff. So I think Boris can help him with that. And Boris coached Joker. You know, and, and their styles are different. And you know, he helped Joker win, I think, six slams when they worked together. So I think I think it's good. And then also, you know, Rune is only 20. He's still really young. You know, he's right. been, been around for, you know, two, three years now. It seems like he should be older, but he's just 20. And like you said, Boris, you know, broke on the scene, you know, 16, 17 years old. So I think he'll be able to give him some insight on, hey, you know, I know what it's like to be a young guy and, and have success and have all the pressure come on you and, and still be at such a young age. And then also, I totally agree with what you say about, you know, he's, he knows what it's like to be there. You know, like when Patrick Martagalou told Runa, blah, 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 you know, and then it didn't work. You know, Runa's looking at him like almost like, you know, well, how do you know? You've never been in these situations. Right. <laughs> you know, like you weren't no. a pro. You definitely weren't a Grand Slam contender. You know what I mean? Point taken. That, that, well, that's basically my point. Yeah. So like, you, you know. You know, and, and, and listen, I, I know that there are students of the game. I understand that, that there are guys who that sit down and just study everybody's game and, you know, stats and, you know, and, and, and go through all that. That's all fine and good. But, you know, there's nothing like that experience yeah. and being there yourself and letting your, not your student, he's not a student, but he's his, you know, now he's his friend, you know, I mean, right. you know, he's going to trust him that everything he says is, is only going to do good things for him. So, best you know, interest. that's beyond a friend. I mean, that's, you know, he's a coach, but he's a friend and he's a mentor. And, and uh, to have somebody in your corner like that is pretty amazing. And, and you're right about the different styles. But when I say Becker, I mean, I played Boris a number of times and his ground strokes were heavy. Yeah. And that seems to be the way Runa likes to hit his ground strokes too. Mm -hmm. You know, that and now if Boris can get him moving a little bit more forward and let him understand the value of getting into the net and shortening the points sometimes when you hit that big heavy ground stroke. And he can't. Like I said, I've done TV with Boris and he can break it down and explain it pretty darn good. So I think that's a good match. Very good match. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And then, uh, you know, having adversity, you know, Runa had early, early success and then all of a sudden had some adversity. We know Boris has gone through a lot these last few years. You know, I think he'll be able to help him, you know, with fighting through stuff and trying to, you know, not listen to the press or, you know, keep quiet and just stay focused on your game and, and do what you do and don't worry about all the other shit. So I'll be watching that. Yeah. That's going to bring me in to watch a little more tennis now. Yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, how, I like having him around. How that works out. And here's another thing. It's going to be interesting for me to see if Runa keeps looking up to him after every point. I don't know if Boris will go for that. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see. You know, he's he's kind of old school, you know. Yep. And when he was playing and Tyriac was in his corner and and he went through all that when he was young, he tended to his business on the court. He wasn't looking up every every minute to the box looking for instructions. He knew what he had to do. Yeah. So it's gonna that I, I want to be looking at that. That's gonna be important. But that matchup right there is gonna, you know, make me want to watch a little more tennis. 
Yep, definitely. You know, they've only had one match together. This comes out Friday, so it'll be dated. He plays his second round or his his, ne- his second match tomorrow. But in his first match, Runa was down a set and a break to Amir uh, Mir Kekmanovic, who's a who's a pretty good player, and was able to turn it around and and come through out of that one in three. So they're off to a good start. Their first win together, and uh, you know, hopefully, a lot more in the future. I'm sure Boris was uh, when he won that after being down a set and a break. I'm sure he wiped his brow. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah, because having to know, sweat because, already. You know, <laughs> coaches come and go in a hurry. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So yep. he got through the beginning. So good. They're off to a good start. Yep. It's great. One thing I always remember about Boris is every every time I'd see him when we were when I was a kid and I'd be with, traveling with you in the locker rooms or whatever, he'd always come over and and I always remember him being super respectful and, and really nice to me as a kid and. And just like, you know, making you feel included, even though it feels, you know, you're a little awkward being in a, in a locker room with a bunch of adults and stuff. And he was always uh, really cool. No, I'm glad he's back in the game and I'm glad he's got a lot of stuff behind him. Yeah. I'm uh, glad he's back around. Definitely. All right, let's move on to this other story that I think you'll like involving some American tennis on the men's side. I know we talk a lot about a lot in the past about, you know, when are the men going to get another Grand Slam champion, blah, blah, blah. But We've talked about this guy a couple times in the last month. Mr. Ben Shelton broke through, wins his first yeah. ever ATP title after just pretty much one year on tour, winning Tokyo, beating uh, Oslan Karatsev and Straits to win his first ATP title. What do you think about that? It's been, it's been an interesting year for him. He had the he broke onto the scene in Australia. He makes the quarterfinals, you know, kind of surprises everybody, you know, puts our expectations kind of high. Then he struggles a little bit, doesn't win back-to-back matches until I think the US Open. Right. Then he makes the semifinals at the U.S. Open, puts up a decent fight against Djokovic, but loses there. And here we are, less than a month later or whatever, and and he's uh, you know checking off another box on on his ascent, winning his first title. Well, is that what we've been waiting for? Right. I mean, you know, to have the American men, you know, start taking their place and you know showing just how good they are. I know there's four in the top fifteen now. Yep. So, but, uh, you know, Shelton just being what I think he's, what, 20 years old? Yeah. 1920? I think he's 20, yeah. Yeah. You know, there you go. But, you know, he, he's he got the game. You know, he's big. He's strong. He's not afraid to, you know, to get in there and, you know, take his chances and, and go for it. And breaking in at 19, Brett, you find that early success, like get, getting to the quarters. If, if that's your success, then all of a sudden, you know, you think, whoa, you know, I'm here. I've got it. And then all of a sudden reality checks in and, you know, you don't win back to back matches for, you know, four or five months and, and things. And then you, then that's when the people around you have to be able to look at you and say, listen, (laughs) you know, you really haven't done anything yet. (laughs) You know, it's time for you to get back down to work and to, you know, start taking your place week after week. And he's found that. And, you know, he had a good U S open. He got to the semis, and and you're right, played a really good match against uh, Djokovic. And now to have won his first title, whoa, you know, he should take that and the confidence and now run with it because that should take him, you know, to another level and so that he understands that his game is good enough to compete against everybody. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so from there, you know, what's the next step? You know, they're in the top 15 you know, that's all good, but you know, what's it take to get into the top two or three? Mm-hmm. And then that's another goal to set. And then here's another goal. You know, how about you've won a tournament, you won a big tournament, you've had some good wins. What about a grand slam? What's it going to take to win a grand slam? You know, you can never stop allowing yourself 
to want to grab something else that's out there in front of you mm-hmm. and never be satisfied. You know, every time, that's why every time you walk out there in practice or in a match that you are giving it your everything that you have and you're working on everything in the practice. Now I'm talking about practice that you need to do <laughs> okay, Alan to become better. I'm sorry. I said, okay, Alan Iverson, we talking about well, practice. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, no, but it's true because, you know, some guys, you know, when they, when they reach a certain level, they think that, you know, that practice is, you know, go practice and, you know, putts around and, right. hit, you know, made hit it. balls between your legs and, you know, and all that, you know, I never had time for that. I wanted to go play and, and know what I could do for an hour and just, you know, give it everything I had for that hour and work on what I wanted to work on and then be ready to play my matches, yeah. you know, and, and, but he seems to have found a good formula since the U S open, yep. you know, it looks like he enjoys it. He likes the competition and, you know, Christ almighty, he's 19, 20 years old. How can you not like the travel and, yeah. and everything that goes along with it? I mean, it's, it's you can, an amazing life. And then by the way, if you win, it's even more amazing. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, good, good, good for him. Good for him. I'm watching him. I'm rooting for him. Yep, definitely. Me too. He just turned 21. So August 9th, he turned, I'm sorry, October 9th, he turned 21. So, but still young. Yeah. And, and I think you're right. There's a few things about him I really like. Like like we said, like, you know, he got some shit. He didn't win back-to-back matches after the initial success at AO. But, I mean, I think the fact that he bounced back, you know, two slams later at the US Open and gets further. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's players who pop up and make a quarter unsuspectedly, you know, unexpectedly or a semi, and then you might not hear from them maybe the rest of their career, but for like a couple exactly. of years. They live off that the rest of their career. Right. right. Like it becomes such a surprise to them that they, you know, they celebrate it, they take time off, maybe they don't work as hard, they enjoy the success, they spend some money, they take a vacation, like whatever it is. But the fact that he's boom, you know, right back to a semi at, a, at the next hardcore Grand Slam. You know, it shows that he's he's not resting on his laurels. You know, he's still hungry. And then not even that. Like, you think, oh, shit, he makes the semis. Maybe he's going to have a little, you know, let down or, or take a walk about for the rest of the year and then come back. Bullshit. Like, less than a month later, right. he goes and wins Tokyo. You know? Right. Well, th- this is a great opportunity for a lot of guys from after the U.S. Open, you know, to really up their rankings and to gain some confidence and also make some money. Yep. You know, maybe a lot of guys don't play as much or, you know, uh, uh, you or they're know, burnt know out re- are burnt out. Yeah. Right. And they and, and they need to take a break and get away. So it's a great opportunity, you know, for a lot of guys to really, you know, kind of hone their skills. You know, these young guys coming up to get more matches and, and to come out and win a tournament like in Tokyo and gain that confidence. And I know going back for me, you know, my year basically ended after the U.S. Open. Right. Uh, you know, I, I played a number of other tournaments and traveled and played exhibitions and, and, you know, went to tournaments where I could get good guarantees and, you know, so I could make some money, but also it's a, you know, for somebody that's young, what an opportunity. I mean, he can go into next year now, yeah. you know, kind of, you know, you know, with that confidence and on a roll and, and you know, what comes at the first of the year, the Australian open, right. <laughs> right. Yep. That's the first big one. And that's in January. So if he can ride this confidence that he has now, you know, I don't, I don't know what his schedule is the rest of the year. And not that many tournaments left, you know, there's only like yeah. two or three left. So you got Paris well, next week. Yeah. And then, uh, I think that might be it. And then he, I don't know if he's playing next gen, he's not qualifying for ATP finals. I don't think, but, 
he'd have to win Paris or something next week. But he lost today to Sinner. He played a good match against uh, Sinner today. Sinner looked pretty good. But you're right. Mm-hmm. Like, I follow him on Instagram. And he's, you know, like, you can tell this is his first trip around the calendar. He was just, you know, he's a college kid, you know, up until the end of last summer. And you can tell, like, he's enjoying himself. You know, he goes to right. he goes to Tokyo. He's putting up stuff from the landmarks. Or he's going to this place. He's going out to the good restaurants. He's putting up pictures. You know, he's putting up stories on his social media, letting us all kind of follow along. His, you know, his pops coaches him. I know you played his pops a couple times yeah. back in the day. Yeah, exactly. You know, he's he, he re- stopped working at Florida so he could travel full time with his son. And I think the thing about him that's gotten, you know, caught him some heat from on social media with some people with, his, you know, his swagger and his attitude and the, you know, the phone, the hanging up. I think that's all the shit that makes him like his ceiling higher than some of the American players. You know what I mean? Like there's this part of him yeah. where he doesn't seem satisfied. You know, like he, you know, he wins last week and you could tell he was pissed that he lost to Sinner today. Not like, well, who cares? You know, I won a tournament last right. week and it, I lose to a top four guy. It's not a bad loss. You know, he was frustrated. You know, he, he expects to win every time he goes out there and he's got that attitude. And I feel like his ceiling might be higher than some of the other American players when, when you kind of look at it. Well, if that's a that's a great observation, and you know because you you know how it is in in today's game, you know a lot of guys are paid a lot of money before they make any impact, you know, which sometimes takes away from their enthusiasm and their work ethic and and all that because you know they have a good bank account right away, mm-hmm. and you know once again, you know his dad is his coach and who has the experience of being out on the tour and playing himself, so you know there you go again. Yep. Which is good. I mean, I know how it was with my mom. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes that can be a tough relationship when if you're listening to your mom or you're listening to your dad and they're trying to, you know, coach you to become a better player. But I mean, there's nobody that's in your corner more than them. Right. You know, so, you know, the trust there is pretty special. Yeah. And then, you know, like you knew because grandma had been there coaching you since you were a kid that like, you know, even if, you know, Poncho had stepped in or whatever, that she was always there for you in your corner. And I think, you know, he's a little, right. he's the same. His dad's probably been his coach his whole life. You know, he played at Florida for him for two years, and I'm sure he was his coach growing up, you know, teaching him how to play the game. So it's it's hard to beat family. You know, it's, it's tough sometimes with like other players. You see Sitsipas's family hanging around, his brother, his sister, his mom, you know, like his girlfriend. And sometimes well, you think it can kind of work against you, but then there's, you know, guys like Shelton where you you think like it's maybe more of a positive for him. But right. all right. It's good to see the American men breaking through and, you know, all being in the four of them being in the top 15 like that. And, you know, hope, hopefully, like you said, that they're not satisfied, that they want to keep on grinding and working and bringing home those major titles and grand slam somewhere down the road. Be good to see. Yeah, it's, it's great seeing all those American flags in the rankings. And, and you're right with the season. It, I don't think people talk about it enough. Like every other season is like six, seven, eight, nine months at the most for like baseball, you know, like April till October, you know, but tennis right. is 11 months. It's almost like 12. Yeah. Like there's stuff in yeah. December. Like, you know, the, the, our last day for the next gen finals is like December 2nd. And then we usually start producing stuff down under like, you know, December 30th sometimes, you know, so it's technically yeah. still wow. <laughs> still Jeez. this year. But, yeah. you know, like you're right. The, the season kind of gets broken up into like kind of, you know, three or four or five mini seasons. There's the people who train really well and don't go to the Maldives during the off season who are ready to hit the ground running, you know, in Australia. You know, maybe they mm-hmm. win. Like a guy like I think of is like Batista Goot. Batista Goot always plays good early in the year. You know, he's got like multiple titles down under and, you know, he does really well the first two months of the season, you know. And then is, is that because of his 
right? You know, how he trains, you know, it's just interesting. And then there's the people like over the years, Rafa usually has, I don't think he's ever won Paris and he's never won the ATP finals. And I think a lot of people think, you know, well, he's gone so hard all year, grinded so hard that it's hard to keep that right. style of play up for 11 freaking months. So yeah. like, it seems yeah, like exactly. Rafa kind of followed maybe a little bit more of your style where, you know, US Open was kind of maybe his main, he obviously went and played all those tournaments a lot of times, but I think his maybe last main goal of the season might've been like the US Open. Right. Well, I mean, you know, you, one thing you do have to listen to is your body, right. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and also now your mind, you know, because you can wear yourself out both ways. Yeah. You know, physically playing too much and, you know, which if you're playing too much, that means that you're in the semis and the finals every week. So that's not a bad thing. No. But that also wears you thin mentally, right. you know, to go through that grind and now you're traveling and, you know, everything that goes along with it. So there's nothing ever wrong with a little rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, not just to get away totally, you know, but to get away from the, you know, the grind and the the mental uh, uh, just wear and tear, just like, wear and tear. Yeah. That, thank you. Yeah. You know that everything comes along with it, and you know, go hit some balls and relax, and you know, refresh, so that you know when you go back and you start playing the tournaments, that you're ready to go. Number one, that you you know go in and think, well, I need to use the first round or second round, you know, for practice to get going. You got to, you know, nowadays you got to get in there and you got to play from day one. Yeah, you know, but there's nothing wrong with refreshing and giving yourself a break once in a while. Yep, I agree. All right, enough of the tennis news. Let's dip into some stories that our listeners gave us. Okay. I'll start off. This is We started off. We asked, hey, trying something new. Like, give us a link to the story or the topic or whatever's going on. You know, give us the link. That way we can click on it and kind of, you know, research it a little, and then we can discuss our favorites on the show. This is the one I did just to start the, the chain. I, did you see this story? Off-duty pilot... Accused of trying to shut off plane's engines mid-flight, said he was having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> Did you see this? Whoa. Alaskan yeah. Airlines, there was a, uh, a off-duty pilot. So I think what happens when off-duty pilots need to catch a ride on a plane, since they don't want to actually give up a seat because that would cost money, they make the pilot fly in the actual cockpit. You know, they have those like jumper seats that kind of like fold down, like they're almost like the same ones that the stewardesses wear. You see them there and then they strap in before you land. He was in the actual cockpit. So it says Emerson, the guy's name is Emerson, attempted to cut the fuel to the plane's engines while the flight was en route from Washington to San Fran on Sunday. It was quickly taken down by the first officer and the pilot, which means they probably knocked his teeth out. And, well, uh, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully got him <laughs> on the ground. And now he is facing, I think, 83 counts. Let me see this. 83 felony counts of attempted murder. Among all, right. among other charges, and I just want to ask him one question: If you were having a nervous breakdown, what were the eighty-three people in the back feeling when those engines almost got cut? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I mean, you know, Jesus, brother. I mean, you know, you, when you walk on an airplane and you're sitting in the back of the plane and expecting to go from point A to point B, look at the trust that you're putting into those people up in the front that are flying you there. Right. Basically, you're literally putting your life in their hands. You're flying at, you know, 35,000 feet at, you know, 550 miles or whatever miles an hour. And, oh, my God, I mean, they've got 83 lives in their hands. And now now we got to worry about 
you know, somebody else is having a nervous breakdown. There's probably enough people having a nervous breakdown sitting in the back, right? You know, for you know, going just going through their daily lives, and you know, and now we got to worry about that. Wait a minute, I'm on this plane because I'm trying to you know get rid of my nervous breakdown, right? You know, and, and wow, and then I, mean, that, I, I you know, I saw the, that. It's an amazing story. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, then the pressure on the pilots not not enough pressure already to land and take off, and you're responsible for 83 lives. You got to worry about you know subduing anyone who might try and take the plane down at the same time. Well, I mean, you know, good for the pilot and the co-pilot up there for, you know, for not only, you know, taking care of uh, flying the plane, going through all that, but also taking him down and not allowing anything to happen to that plane. I mean, you know, the pressure on them, you're right, is tremendous anyway, every time they take off and land, but to have to go through that. I'm sure, you know, when they got home, they were uh, looking forward to putting their feet up and relaxing and getting away from that. Yeah. Oh, my God. Definitely. Yeah, that's a scary one. You're right, though. I mean, you think of a pilot, they just come on. You don't know. Like, have they taken a breathalyzer? Like, are they good? Like, the, the risk involved if something's off with the pilot is so high or it's like you think <laughs> maybe there should be some screening or something. I don't know. But Well, they, they, they screen all the passengers, don't they? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And then you're, yeah, you're in security. You always, see, you always see the crew just walk straight through as if, like, it's a given that they're okay. But it's like, are you, are you sure? Is anyone having a nervous breakdown or any sort of mental health issues? You know, like, <laughs> No, yeah. no, I'm okay. I'm yeah, good. I'm you're good, good. You're good. I'll be, I'll be, I'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Oh, boy. Well, I'm glad everything turned out okay there, man, oh, man. But the 83 counts, there must have been, you know, the pilot and the crew and, and all the passengers. That's his... 83 counts of attempted murder right yep. there, you know, taking all them down. And, and then it delayed the, the flight. Like they had to land in freaking Portland or something. So then you're like, oh, Jesus, I'm not even where I was supposed to go. And I got to get another flight. <laughs> so mm, annoying. Man. What, 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 a, what a day. What a well, time. I'm glad everything turned out okay. I don't, I hate to even see and we even have to talk about stories like that. I hope I don't see any more of those like yeah, that. Yeah, me too. Since we started doing the podcast here at Advantage Connors, I'm always looking to try and get better. And one of the tools I use to get better is Masterclass. Ever since I started watching their videos and consuming their content, I have been a much better podcaster and it has helped change my outlook on so many things. This fall, learn from the best by becoming your best with Masterclass. From leadership to effective communications to cooking. Whether you're watching Masterclass on TV, listening to audio mode, or in the app, or on their site, the quality speaks for itself. It's like Masterclass instructors are your own personal mentors that are going to help you reach that next level. How much would it cost to take a one-on-one -on -one class from the world's best? Easily hundreds of thousands of dollars. With a Masterclass, annual membership is only $10 a month. Membership starts at $120 a year for unlimited access to one-on-one -on -one classes with all 180-plus Masterclass instructions. Learn how to negotiate a raise with Chris Voss or manage your relationship with Esther Perel. There are over 180 classes to pick from with new classes added every month. We use Masterclass here at Advantage Connors and we think you should too. Boost your confidence and find practical takeaways you can apply to your life and at work. And if you own a business or are a team leader, use Masterclass to empower and create future-ready employees and leaders. And right now, as a special offer, Advantage Connors listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at Masterclass. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash Connors. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash Connors. That's masterclass.com slash Connors. 
Okay, here's a, here's a sad story, but also kind of a good one. Do you see this? Guinness World Records are saddened to learn of the death of Bobby, the world's oldest dog ever. I have Amazing. a hard time thinking ever, but like, yeah, the oldest dog I think in the world. Bobby lived to be 31 years, 165 days old, and spent his entire life with his loving owner in Portugal, in a Portuguese village of Conqueros. Passed away mm-hmm. October 20th at an animal hospital. He said, mm. and they said the, the secret to his long life was that he ate regular human food. He didn't eat like kibble. So shout right. out to feeding your dog regular food. And that, uh, you know, he, he interacted socially with other animals a lot when he got a little bit of exercise every day. And, uh, and the owner said, we have a very low anxiety environment. Like their home is very low anxiety. And, and the, the vet who was interviewed for the story said that's key in, uh, you know, keeping dogs healthy and letting them live long is, is dogs soak up the anxiety in their environment. You know, so like wow. I, can, I can tell sometimes where I'm like, I start to like get frustrated or something, Bella will like pop her head up before I even know I'm mad, you know? Right. <laughs> so yeah. like they no, know what's going right. on almost with you before you do. So that was kind of sad. This, we're big dog lovers here. I had to talk a little bit about that. The dog was older than Melina. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's amazing. So, but you, but you know what? 31, brother, it's amazing. And the record before that was 29. Okay. And I heard that the dog who held that record, being 29, held that record for a century. Wow. So That's crazy. Well, I think we, we got a new leader in the clubhouse, and it sounds like, you know, living uh, you know, to 31 years old, it, he had a pretty spectacular life. And uh, how about that? It, wouldn't that be nice if uh, all our pets could live that long? It'd be yeah, amazing. That would be amazing. It did make me want to go get some regular, you know, start giving Bella kind of more normal food. Just because I read that, and I was like, oh, man, might be a little something to that. Because who knows what gets put into like the dry kibble stuff that we give our dogs. You know, it's just like mass produced shit from some company that doesn't really care. <laughs> so, well, they, they've got a number of companies out there who do that. Mm-hmm. And and you know it's funny that uh, your your mom has been been thinking about doing that for you know for our bogey also yeah that you know instead of just kibble because kibble is kind of like dead food right you can leave it on the shelf and you can go back two years later to be the same right it's just you that know, hard so, it's like hard pellets you know sometimes Bella's like hard time cr- you know crunching it you feel almost like you want to like soften it or like wet it a little bit so it's not so hard on her teeth. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know what? I think tomorrow I want to look into that even more and, and, and think, I, I can't remember the name of the company out there, but I see the, the commercials. Uh, we'll you look know, it the, up. The, we'll the, find some. There's a store down here too that has it kind of close to us. So we might try some. If it's pretty good, we'll bring some up to you. You know, and here's another thing. Uh, you know, we, we've got friends that have their pups and uh, that have lived, you know, a really long lives and, and they make their own meals for them yeah you know with you know with rice and chicken and you know just kind of you know kind of make it mix it and do i know that's a lot of work but you know with all due respects our pets are worth it you know nothing like uh you know coming home and having your pets there to greet you it's the best yep so we got to take care of them like they take care of us definitely i got i got one sitting right here she takes good care of me um i know you do yeah here's another story that someone posted have you heard of this thing? These uh, blue zones? Why people in blue zones live longer than the rest of the world? Blue zones are geographical areas with lower rates of chronic disease and longer life expectancy. Diet, fasting, and exercise are factors associated with blue zones. Italy, Greece, Japan, Costa Rica, and the U.S. all have a blue zone. Have you heard about this? I have not. It's kind of interesting. 
yeah, but you know what what is involved in a blue zone that that allows you to you know what is it less stress less I don't know anxiety like, here here's some of the cities it's like Icaria Greece Icaria is an island in Greece where people eat a Mediterranean diet rich in olive oil red wine and homegrown vegetables that's why they say that one's good then mm-hmm. Sardinia Italy is home to some of the oldest men in the world they live in mountainous regions where they typically work on farms and drink lots of red wine. I guess they're saying red wine's all right. It sounds like red wine's not a bad thing. <laughs> I shouldn't <laughs> stop drinking. <laughs> I shouldn't have given up drinking. Yeah. Okinawa is home to the world's oldest women who eat a lot of soy-based food and practice Tai Chi, a meditative form of exercise. Shout out Casey DeFranco. I know she loves her soy products. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Costa Rica. I like this one. That's, that's a little closer to home. The diet is based around beans and corn tortillas. The people in this area are regularly perform physical jobs into old age and have the sense of life purpose known as plan de vida yeah i think that's a big mm. one after you know hanging out with anida and and seeing how you know you know she kind of went a little bit downhill these last few years you know we talked about it before she worked until she was 91 you right. know drove herself to walmart was a walmart greeter until she was 91 years old you know and, and she stops working and you could almost you know, I mean, it is what it is. You start, you have to stop at some point, but you could track it. You know, she, right. you know, she started her decline a little bit after she stopped working, slowed down. You could tell she missed her friends and that the environment, the being, you know, needed and wanted and, and people be smiling when they see you. That's a lot. I don't think we realize how much energy and, and, and good that does people. So I think, you know, when, when you lose your job or you lose your sense of like purpose, you know, you're a little lost. Yeah, I mean, you know, getting getting up and getting going every day is a good thing. Yeah, and and you're you're right. Your sense of purpose, you know, to get up and have something, you know, that you look forward to doing. You know, your your work or your taking your dog for a walk or you know exercising or or whatever it is, you know, to have that purpose and and to get through it. All that does is make your day even better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I know, you know, from my standpoint, you know, I get up and and I want to get going, but Sometimes you're going, oh, do I want to? You know, I'm tired today. You know, right. I don't feel good. I'm, you know, I'm sore. I'm this, I'm that. You can think of an excuse every day why not to. Mm-hmm. You know, why not think of an excuse why to? Right. Well, then yeah, the crazy you know, part is how much your mind fucks with you. You know, because your body well, yeah. is almost always just sitting there ready to go. Your body will go, but your mind will be like, yep. no, I don't want to go. You know, your mind will literally <laughs> jump right. in between you and your body and be like, I don't know. I got a lot of excuses in my back pocket I could use to not go for that run today. You want to try and whip right. some of them out? You know, it's like, yep, and you're yep, like, and your body's right. sitting there going like, look, I can run. I'm ready. Like we haven't done anything all day. Let's go do something. Let's go, let's get a little exercise. And your body's like, eh, why don't we do it tomorrow? Yeah, tomorrow. <laughs> it's always easier tomorrow. <laughs> always tomorrow. Right. Yeah. Always tomorrow. Well, that'd be the case. I got a nice little blue zone right here. Yeah. I think so too. You know, like I said, you find a purpose to get up and get going and appreciate the day. And, you know, it's interesting, better when, when I was younger and when, when I was traveling and playing tennis and, and busy and, you know, and all that, you're, you're so kind of out of touch with a lot of things. And, and I remember my grandma, your great grandma always told me, says, you know, sometimes you just got to, you know, cool it a bit. And, you know, she always said, you know, smell the roses and, and, you know, that's a cliche statement but it's true because if you don't then you power yourself into just nonstop 
stress and anxiety and aggravation and and all that. So you know you got to take some time. I think you know, especially you know, I'm, I'm talking for myself now, that you have to take time to do something that's good for you. Yeah. And what that is, probably different for everybody, you know. But to be able to find that. You know, and and to you know, wake up in the morning, you go in, but then also to lay your head on the pillow at night and say, "Man, have I had a good day?" Yeah. You know, or this day, this day wasn't so good, but tomorrow's going to be better. Like you said, the mind's a a tricky thing sometimes, and you got to take care of your mind and your body both yep. at the same time. Yep. Yeah. It says that there's a an exceptional amount of ninety and centurions. I guess is what they call them. People who live to be wow. over a hundred years old. In all these places, they think it's a combination of just, you know, good, decent weather, good diet, and, you know, be, staying active, which are all good things. Okay, here we go. Dave McConey didn't leave us a link, damn you, Dave. <laughs> but uh, he wants you to talk a little bit about it. He just says he watched the full match against that you had against uh, the Battle of the Sexes, part whatever it was, three or four or five, <laughs> but with you and Martina Navratilova back in the early yeah. 90s. I remember this. We were there, Caesar's Palace. Yep. He says, I just watched it in entire. It's entirely, and JC was fully engaged. It was 5-5 five, five in the first. I'm not sure I've heard much about this on the podcast discussed. I'd love to hear about it a little bit. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's interesting, you know, playing Martina and it's Caesar's Palace and and it was, you know, it was kind of the, you know, the second battle of the sexes after Bobby Rigg had lost to Billie Jean King. Well, remember there was and, that weird doubles one with Vetus. <laughs> there was some weird like doubles battle of the sexes that like Vetus played in, I think. I can't remember exactly, <laughs> but... It was weird. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, <laughs> that was doubles. Though. Yeah, 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 for <laughs> you know? sure. Do you remember? Do you remember being? Were you nervous at all because Bobby had lost to uh, Billy Jean, and you know now you were you were going to face off against Martina? Or did you feel like added pressure or anything like that? No, but Riggs was there, and I was down three one in the first set, and and he was up, you know, doing some TV up there, and. And all of a sudden, there's some noise up and up there, and, and Riggs got so nervous that I was down three one. He, he almost passed out, you know. And I'm saying, well, what, what, wait a minute, don't be putting that pressure on me. You already screwed it all up, <laughs> you, know, be, you know, beforehand. I said, you know, what are you doing that to me for? What was what, was he trying to live vicariously through you? Was what, were you going to get the revenge for him against Martina? So, I, I, guess, <laughs> I, I guess so. I guess so. But it, it that was too late for that, right? But it was interesting because I, I, you know, I got to Caesar's Palace and uh, a week before because we did a lot of good promotion. Martina and myself did a lot of great promotion for the event, and both of us, you know, would be down practicing. And and for me, I. I I took, uh, you know, with me, I took Vetus, was there with me, and uh, David Schneider. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I was giving up some extra space on both sides, uh, you know, half of each alley. And, you know, but that's not the way I was playing them. I was, you know, they were hitting to me, and I was working on my game. And, you know, I was, you know, just a, you know, a couple of years off the tour, three or four years off the tour. And I was still, you know, pretty good and moving good and 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 in really good shape. And, and it was, it was interesting because, Every time after, you know, I, I'd look at, you know, I say, shit, I'm hitting the ball good. And David Schneider would look at me and he says, man, you're really hitting the ball good. Man, you're playing great. You're just play like that. And then literally five minutes before we were to walk down to go play the match, he looks at me and he goes, you know, Jimmy, this isn't going to be as easy as you think. <laughs> and I go, I go, my God, but you wait, you wait until the last minute, you know, to tell me that. <laughs> but I will, I will say the whole leading up to that, the week of 
the marketing and the promotion for it and then the match and you know the the 16,000 people and and everything that it turned out to be was pretty damn exciting yeah and also playing martino which uh, you know was great you know to me one of the greatest of all time and and uh, you know and her record proves it but you know to play her and, and to you know have it on a stage like that was awfully exciting yeah definitely it was it was a lot of fun i remember you know we had grandma was there the whole family was there a lot of people. We had fun. Okay, let's move on to another story. Got a question from mm-hmm. our boy, Billy Riley, who lives out in uh, Las Vegas. Ah. Mr. Riley, how are you? If you're listening, um, he, uh, he sent us this question. This is a story that's that's taken over Las Vegas for the last six months. They've been doing preparations. They've had to double repave the roads. They've had to do this and that and this. We're talking about the F1 race that's coming to Vegas in uh, less than a month now, in the first couple weeks Mm -hmm. of November. What are your thoughts on this? I actually drove on my way out to Denver. I stopped in Vegas just to go check out that sphere, that new like stadium that they have called the sphere. Yeah. Just I drove by it, took some pictures. It was really cool. But you could see a lot of the stuff going on. You they like double like they paved so much blacktop on top of the road. I guess because the tires that they use for F1 need a certain grip or a certain whatever it is. But then they're doing a lot of this weird shady shit where like, you know, like the little walkways that go over, you know, the strip where you try and, you know, cross the street, you walk over it. So it's safer for people. They're putting Mm -hmm. up like tint. So they're like tinting out all the windows, all the places that anybody might catch like a free glance of like a freaking car (laughs) driving by. Like, oh, wow. How exciting can that be? Yeah. <laughs> you could tell I'm not yeah. the biggest F1 fan here, but uh, I mean, I appreciate it. I like it. I like Lewis Hamilton and everything, but I don't know. It seems like a little bit absurd the way Vegas is bent over backwards for this like event that's literally going to be like 90 minutes, you know? Yeah, and, it, it's it's crazy. It's crazy, Brad. It, I, I know you just went through there on your way up to Denver, but about four weeks ago, I was in Las Vegas also and, you know, kind of drove around and saw everything that was going on. And, you know, Vegas is is a tough get around now anyway. It's not like it was in the old days when, you know, they had the Las Vegas Strip and, and Las Vegas Boulevard and you, you could walk up and down it and know where you were going and see, you know, the different hotels and everything. I mean, it's growing so much and so much building going on and so forth that it's tough to get around. And now with all that going on, wow, it was even more difficult. But, you know, I, I know that the hotels are waiting, waiting, waiting for this to happen because, you know, the suites and the prices and the rooms and the food and, and everything is going to be out of control for that amount of time mm-hmm. that, you know, they come in and, and get organized and get ready for the race and then the race. And then right after that, it's going to be crazy there. But it would be fun to hop in a car and drive the route mm-hmm. that they're going to take, you know, and, and see the actual width of the streets and the turns. how much room they, the turns and how much room they have and all that, that would be a, a lot of fun to do. But as far as, I mean, I, I like watching it. I know our friend Bill Lally, he loves it. Mm-hmm. He loves watching it. And, you know, for him, I know he's, he can't wait for that to happen, but, but it would be good to get around it, but to go and, into unless you're down in the pits mm-hmm. if you're down there then that you get a different view of all that and and everything that goes on and what it takes to you know to keep the cars running and and you know how the team works to you know to change the tires and yeah, to to do different stops. things that would be amazing but you know as far as uh, just sitting there and, and watching the cars go by i don't know if that would be something that i could do for a day no and, and it's weird to see like vegas you know, 
changed so much. Like all the trees that like line the walkway by the uh, Bellagio fountain, like rip the trees out. You know, I mean, they're like doing things where you're like, man, is this shit really, I mean, like, is any one thing that big in Vegas where you're willing to like destroy things of like the infrastructure just to like have a 90 minute race? Like, uh, You know, you know, I, I think the amount of money that that's bringing to Las Vegas, I think they'd turn all those hotels upside down if they had to. Right. I, I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little question. I'm questioning it a little bit how successful it's really going to be because like, it, yeah. it's, I mean, obviously people love it over here, but it's not the same as in Europe. You know, like F1 and the racing, we're more NASCAR people in America than we are F1. And, you know, we like our turns left. We don't like right and left turns here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's going it's to be interesting just to see how it is, is accepted. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think you're going to, you know, the amount of people that are going to be there and the amount of people that are coming, you know, from out of out of the United States, you know, to watch it and to be a part of it and all that. I think, you know, it's, you know, they, they make it into an amazing event and and obviously you know with what they've done in vegas you know they they're expecting you know something amazing mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and, and and what what is that you know the amount of people that come and you know that that are a part of it and as spectators you know not you know down in the pits but just as spectators that you know that just w- want to be there to to see it so yeah yeah i'll watch a little bit of it i, I i'll I watch mind, the recap uh, of it yeah, <laughs> I feel well, like I watch that. Watch it, you know, watch some of it and and see, and maybe it's for us to you know kind of break into it slowly, you know, to mm-hmm. see a little bit of it and say, well, you know, shit, I really like that. Maybe you know, maybe I want to get more involved in that. I'd like to see the next one. Where's the next one? I want to watch a little bit more. Right. So you know, and it's also close to us. It's also close to us here. It's not far from, you know, from uh, you're no. in L.A. and I'm in Santa Barbara. It's, it's close, and we can kind of feel the the excitement, you know, around because of the amount of people that are talking about it already. I know there's people here in Santa Barbara that are, they're so excited, you know, and they're going, you know, they can't wait for it. Yeah. You know, so it's going to be interesting to, you know, to hear their thoughts once they come back from it. Yep. It's, uh, you know, definitely like a gamble. I mean, it's fitting that it's in Vegas that they're doing all this, you know, in the hopes that it's successful, because if it's not, you know, like all this, they might not have it next year. <laughs> it just like go away or whatever. Well, so yeah, there's a lot, a lot of pressure on the first year. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Let's see any other, any other topics, any other stories you got out there? You want to talk? No, about? I, I think, uh, you know, I think every, you know, outside of everything that's going on, you know, around the world and, and, uh, you know, just trying to everybody, hopefully they stay safe and, you know, things get worked out, but, you know, kind of taking it easy. I, I saw, your classmate and your friend, Dr. Lance Grant. Who again. Is, uh, <laughs> I, again, I go every week now because I have uh, Invisalign. Uh, how's that going? I, uh, Give us the update. Yeah, it, Are they moving? Yeah, they're, yeah, it's an amazing thing. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I never had braces as a kid. And it's like your sister said, Jesus, Dad, you waited until you're 71 to do something about it. You know, couldn't you have figured it out earlier? But <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a, it's an amazing thing. And and I'm in my third week now. And, nice. And uh, it, it's starting to, things are starting to change. And it's uh, working out pretty good. I like it. I like it a lot. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's all I got. I'm going to go. I have a Chinese chicken salad waiting oh, for me to it. in the kitchen <laughs> that I'm going to go put together and uh, chomp down on. And then uh, I'm going to be back in at Tennis Channel tomorrow. We're, uh, we're doing T2 action from Vienna and Basel for the men this week. This will come out Friday morning. So if you're listening early, you can tune us in till around 3, 4 Eastern time. We got Ted Robinson and my man Gil Gross on the call. So uh, check into Tennis Channel T2 and TC Plus to watch us and follow along. And, uh, and we'll check in with everybody next week. Anything else? 
yeah, in the meantime, you can follow me at Jimmy Connors on Twitter and uh, Brett underscore Connors on Twitter and at Advantage Connors and, uh, you know, keep sending in some some good questions from uh, all our followers. We like hearing from you and uh, hopefully we can, you know, get to them and uh, answer all of them somewhere down the road. Definitely. Yeah, I, I like the way we've been doing this. Leave us topics, questions. I love the links. The links are good, too, because if just in case we haven't heard about the story, we can click it and, and read it and do a little research before we discuss it on the pod. and share it with you guys so look forward to talking to you next week pops and playing some golf when we get a little free time and uh, i'm gonna go get some dinner and take it easy and we'll talk to you all next week peace seeking the truth never gets old introducing june's journey the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.